Hello and welcome to Can I Get a Picture? I'm your host, Soul Lovemore. Join me as I get to pick the brains of some extraordinary people hearing their struggles and successes that have shaped who they are today. Today we're talking to Toby Edwards. He's the managing director of on-demand jet charter platform, Fly Victor. He joined the startup as their first sales executive in 2012 and has been instrumental in leading the company's fast growth, making the Sunday Times Tech Track 100 for the past four consecutive years. I first met Toby through a business relationship. He's one of the top leaders in the private aviation sector with a passion for environmental innovation. I hope you enjoy our conversation filled with great advice on startups, success in business and the importance of environmental innovation and sustainability. Toby, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Thank you for coming on. I mean, I was actually thinking, one before I emailed you to come on, I was thinking of when we met and cast in my mind, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was roughly three, four years ago, I came to see you at the your headquarters at Sloan Street. Exactly right, yeah. Thank you, Sol, and thanks very much for having me, and it was a pleasure to hear from you and ask me to come on your podcast, which is great. Pleasure. First off, let's start with early life. So what was what was your childhood like? You know, what was what was growing up like for for Toby? Um my childhood was fairly straightforward, I think. I had three brothers, number three or four. Um grew up in London, uh, not southwest London, not too far from where our offices are in Fulham. Uh always loved always loved my sport. So I played I played mini rugby for Roslyn Park, which for people in the rugby family, it's quite a well-known club. Um, in the amateur days, they were one of the better teams and they host the famous Roslyn Park Seven. So played a lot, played a lot of schoolboy and mini club rugby growing up. Um, and eventually I, I ended up actually in boarding school in, in Southwest England um, up until the age of 18 where uh, it's it's for people who haven't been there um i think it's quite a challenging environment to understand why maybe why your parents would send you or indeed why you'd enjoy it but uh for for myself and for my close friends who went we loved it and uh we're we're pretty tight bunch still today amazing and when you were you're in school obviously you've spoken a bit about your activities playing rugby but did you have an idea of a career path would you say when you were in school at that time or was it just you know you were you were enjoying you were enjoying your education you enjoying sport how did you kind of navigate that yeah I think from actually from a pretty young age I always enjoyed selling things and making money um and I, I did various things like I sold apples in my parents front garden to the traffic by the traffic you know by the level crossings which we lived by um i also used to make homemade elderflower cordial and sell that door to door around the street so i always i always enjoyed that uh face-to-face persuading people to purchase the product and trying to make money as quickly as possible um and i enjoyed the challenge and so it wasn't it wasn't a surprise, I think, when I was at university. I, I sort of knew I was going to go into sales. But during school, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I did, I did geography at university, which um, has proven to be pretty useful more today than I thought it would have been because we did a fair amount around sustainability and things like that. Um, and obviously with climate change being such a, such a big topic today. So I didn't know the specifics, but I thought 
I'd always enjoy work and I was quite enthusiastic about getting into the real world. Actually, having, in hindsight, I wonder if university was worthwhile. Like, I don't regret it at all, but I think I'd probably be um, where I am, if not further ahead, had I not gone to university. So I'm always pleased to be speaking to young people who say, well, actually, I'm, I think I'm not going to go to uni. And indeed, at Victor, we hire... We hire quite a lot of our sales team who are very successful, pretty young, don't go to university. So it's, it's, it's certainly not the be-all and end-all, which I think some people think, oh, I've got to go to university to have a successful career. And I, that's, that's certainly nonsense. Yeah, and I think that's great because it's, it's also a testament to the modern times we're living in. As you, as you say, we're in a time now where having a degree... Of course, education is important depending on the field you go into. You know, if you want to be a surgeon and stuff, there's difference. But I, I do agree with you that in the more uh, entrepreneurial, tech-led world, it's more about actual execution and having the skill set to deliver on the job rather than saying, hey, guys, I've got a degree from such, such a university. And I think it's good because it creates more opportunity, really, for for everyone, you know. Yeah, as you say, and you don't know when you're 18, 17, 18, or even younger, when you're forced to choose what subject you want to study at university, what what your real interests are going to be. And maybe maybe society needs to look at that and think there should be less pressure to like follow this ladder in you know, school, university, and add, go and go and get five years hands-on experience within a company like yours, dealing with clients, understand what customer service is all about. Um, and then perhaps you might want to do a master's or a degree in something that's really going to help your career further down the line. But yeah, even looking today, I just think I look at my degree versus the practical experience and the and the on job on the job experience I've got over the years. And as you said, it's there's no comparison. It's chalk and cheese because you know. Yeah, you could. I'm sure you could spend months on furloughing, for example, if you were doing a degree in HR, right? Whereas we've all had to just learn that on the job over the last couple of months. I didn't know what furlough meant two months ago. I never even heard the word. And now, like, what it means, all the implications, how you have to adapt the processes, the emails. The best way, as you say, is on the job. Even this pandemic and everything that's happened, I think it it will also influence the way people hire and the way things go, you know, because now... Unfortunately, there's going to be, you know, there's talk of a lot of students missing out on their education and this, that and the other. And there's probably a lot of people who are in the processes of taking exams, trying to apply for their, you know, for uni and things like that. So it is going to be an interesting time and hearing people in positions like yourself actually saying, look, guys, there is another way is good because then it just gives people a bit more hope. It's easy to say like where there's a will, there's a way, but I really feel that's true. And it's, it's difficult, whatever walk of life you're in, whether you're experienced or at university or leaving school, like it's always going to, it might feel like it's the end of the world. But actually, if, you, if you're passionate about something and you really believe, you will find someone in another company or someone potentially to partner with you who wants to go on that journey. And you can be successful, whatever the environment, like you just got to believe in yourself. Yeah, no, for sure. And um, going back to your career, I know you began in recruitment. So... Tell me a little bit about that, how obviously naturally, just from hearing your experiences, you're a sales guy. We're a bit similar, one in the same, that we're front-facing people. Anything to do with people, we're going to naturally excel. So how did you go from, okay, you finished uni and now you go into to recruitment? I literally put my CV online, I think with Monster and Guardian Jobs. There's a couple of good websites. And I, 
I got a hound it and I was like, this is amazing. I think getting a job isn't so difficult. And then I realized it was all recruitment agencies asking me if I wanted to be a recruiter. And I was like, you know what? I want to get into London. I want to make some cash. I've got a geography degree. I don't necessarily know what I want to do with it. So this seems like a logical next step. So I literally got got into town and 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 had a load of interviews. And I ended up working for quite a small company um, in South Kensington who specialized in um, like private equity, boutique investment banks, hedge fund recruiting, and in both permanent and temporary stuff. And it wasn't a big company. There was only about 12 of us, which I think was a blessing in disguise uh, in that I immediately got the, the client-facing experience and the account management, which is, I think, a lot of, a lot of the fun part. Um, interviewing candidates, too, that was one of the company's kind of unique selling points is that they met every candidate that they were recruiting in person. So you, you would be every day meeting two or three different candidates, some applying for a specific job, some more just generic, I need help with my career. And there I was, like, 22, with, with no real corporate experience at all trying to give people advice but you just listen learn interview send the cvs out speak to your clients and you, you start to build a rapport with clients you get on with each other um and it's it's a it's a brilliant it's actually a brilliant first job i just felt like at the time there was a lot of companies who were who had big brands approaching things quite differently there was i don't know if you remember one fine stay but there was that airbnb Halo, who were like before Uber, the, they were the yellow app on, but for black cabs, um, Groupon. There were a load of nutmeg. There were so many good companies that I thought, oh, that'd be cool to join them and be part of their journey. Uh, and rather than that sort of circular, get a job, find CVs, interview the candidates, place the next job. You know, it's, that the, I, the thought of being part of a brand and building a brand and maybe um disrupting an industry was was really appealing to me um and that's when i heard about victor as you said i've left recruiting you've got an interesting in all these new disruptors coming in all these tech businesses so then how do you find out about victor first and foremost and get a job at victor as well so i was reading quite a lot on the weekend um newspapers just to understand what was going on like the ft weekend for instance is a great newspaper, even if you don't read it daily, because it gives you, there's a lot in there about international relations and marketing. It's not so like finance, finance, finance. So I was reading that um, and there was an insert that fell out and it was about Victor. And I read that and it was, a lot of it was uh, content that had been written by our founder, Clive Jackson, and his vision, the brand itself in this insert. Uh, and, and, when I thought about it, actually, I hadn't thought about it before, but then when I started to think about the airline sector and what EasyJet had done in the budget space and what Virgin had done, Transatlantic, these big brands had come in and disrupted. Clive's vision within private aviation seemed really appealing. So th there wasn't that much to it other than I literally called. It was a Saturday. I phoned the office and I said, are you hiring? You must need salespeople to sell these flights. And the co-founder, Mike, uh said to me we're not but if you want to send your cv and a cover letter please do and i'll get back to you so i did that didn't hear anything for about two weeks so i called back and i said hi mike it's toby again i'm, I'm really interested in this and he said oh go on then let's let's meet up so i think we we actually um met in the in the original office in fulham um 
and we got on really well. We talked about all sorts of things, not just work. And I think you could see that the those skills that you get in recruitment, you have to be organized. You have to be pretty good at communicating. They're, they're kind of fundamental skills that not every graduate has, like knowing how to use Outlook and a work office corporate phone. Like, so these are basic things, but you'd be surprised. Well, you probably know, but a lot of people you hire are just like, oh, I, I wouldn't know where to start. Or at least that was 12, 15 years ago, leaving university. I'm not sure. Now, today, everyone's probably a bit better prepared. And then my first job was sales at, at Victor. So I was given the rich list of, of a notepad, pen, um, and, and a phone. And it's like, let's see what you're made of, Toby. And you want to just um, start ringing specifically high net worth individuals and persuading them to try Victor for the first time. And we were a startup. So when you read in books like Start With Why, you, you, you understand the theory that there are like early adopters of products and brands. And so when you're working in sales for a startup, I didn't know this really at the time, but you, you, you've got to accept that a lot of people just aren't going to be interested. They want to work with the established brands who do things the normal way. And then you'll get other people on the phone who are like, oh, that does sound interesting. Oh, you are actually solving that pain point. And, and then you feel with confidence because you only take one or two good calls and suddenly you're like, wow, I'm onto something. This is actually really fun. And that is really fun. It's probably the most fun thing about working at this company is the the exposure you get with very successful people. Yeah, I can imagine that your your client list is is pretty impressive. Um, and obviously, within your time, you started as sales executive, and then to be now a managing director. You know, after eight years, what type of roles have you taken up? You know, to get to the managing director position, and and give us some example of some challenges you faced thus far in your journey to get into to where you are today. The most rewarding but also the most challenging part is dealing with people. And I'm not necessarily talking about clients. I'm talking maybe internally as well. And so being able to kind of accept that you're going to have to work together in order to achieve your goals. And therefore, at some point, in my case, I was like, I actually think I could add more to the company managing than selling. Um, and part of that management clearly was we were still very small then was hiring a lot of people and I had this recruitment experience. So it it sort of fell into place. But um, when you've already got a book of clients and things are going really well, so then to it sounds it's not that easy actually to let your clients go, give them to other colleagues and move into a different position and learn a new skill set, which was um, hiring internally building that sales team, sort of having an idea of culturally what we were and who would fit in and who wouldn't fit in and what languages we needed as we expanded into different territories and then becoming a manager. So that's that's personally how my role evolved. I went from a sales position to a junior manager, growing a, growing a team gradually, starting to set targets, making sure that we were achieving as much as we were meant to be each month. And then opportunities arose internationally as well and i think that helped as my career progressed to get experience in different territories so i went to moscow i went to i spent a long time in new york um and and these culturally like seeing how other people work and do things although they're fundamentally chartering a plane is the same thing but it's so different for example in new york to in london how you would go about that and and learning that and understanding that is all is all part of the career development so i guess going getting some international experience 
if you want to fast track your career is something I would recommend for sure. Who would you say in, in that in that time span has been your biggest inspiration and why? I like I love reading autobiographies um, and latterly listening to podcasts. <laughs> um, if people haven't read Clive Woodward's book, Winning, it's a brilliant business book. He wrote it after winning the Rugby World Cup in 20 in in um 2003 but the actual book has a lot of business content in there so there's a good book which i've read a couple of times which i take a lot of um inspiration from growing up uh my best friend he's a uh, he's like a bear grills type character but there's no marketing he doesn't he doesn't talk about it he doesn't share it um, but he was he was one of the youngest guys to climb Everest when he was 19. He pretty much ran up with no oxygen on the more difficult side. I forget which that is, the north or the south. Uh, and we we did a lot together growing as as young guys. Like we cycled from Land's End to John O'Groats uh, pretty quickly. We did an Ironman together. And he taught me, for someone who wasn't an academic at school, that if you are determined and you set yourself goals and you work hard and you train hard, you will you will achieve them. Like, and, and it's a cliche thing like anyone can do everything well of course you can't but if you if you know roughly what your strengths are you can dream big and then set goals you'll achieve them for sure but you know I'm, I'm with you on the reading and I actually haven't come across that um Clive Woodward book but I'm going to add that to my um to my reading list as well and in terms of uh, going back to Victor again you guys are big on environmental innovation so what drives your passion personally for the environmental innovation and how are you guys approaching this, you know, the challenges you've faced and things you're doing to kind of help the greater good? Because I think the aviation industry is one of the main areas people have looked to in terms of environmental issues and X, Y, and Z. So it's probably been the biggest challenge for most companies and more so companies in your space. Yeah, um, I would say like, See, this idea of CSR and having a bolt-on corporate social responsibility is dead. I don't think that's good enough anymore. I think as a business, you have to have social responsibility and social purpose ingrained in your brand and what you're trying to achieve, whatever that might be. So as an aviation company, especially a company that's chartering business jets, that's particularly challenging. Um, because we've always been transparent, though, I think we saw quite early on opportunities to try and embrace this and tackle this. So we started working hard on this in 2018 because our investor at the time was BP and their oil and gas company. So they also, BP Target Neutral, have a lot of um, resources to invest in becoming more and more sustainable. Um, for Victor, the three areas we looked at were carbon offsetting, which is buying credits so you buy one credit for each ton that you let out of your jets. Um, so we look, we do 200%. We buy twice as many carbon credits as we need per ton. So 200% offsetting. We also use our sister company, Rocket Route, who are a flight, flight scheduling system um, to ensure the, the routes being flown are as optimal as possible. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of wasted fuel if you're not flying the most optimal route obviously and also fuel is profit fuel is money and therefore there's a there's, there's plenty that can be done there and then the third pillar of our sustainability program um, is around sustainable aviation fuels or SAF 
which the technology has come a long way over the last couple of years. There's, there's some great manufacturers of SAF in Finland and also in San Francisco. The issue, of course, is that you can't move it to use it. Otherwise, you're breaking the whole point. If you've got to fly something that's been made to be sustainable, then, of course, the air miles on the sustainable fuel. So that then comes back into the offsetting because if you might not actually be using sustainable aviation fuel, but you could be paying for it elsewhere. Somebody else could be using it and then you're um, flying with a bit with a bit clearer conscience. Um, and that conscience thing is also very important because it ties into like luxury and what does luxury lean, mean. And I think that luxury is having a clear conscience. And so if you can afford to fly privately and use business aviation as a tool to save time, there's justifiably good reason to do that. But you might also have a pretty strong environmental agenda and worry a lot about the future. Anyone, I think, who has kids probably worries about climate change. And so um, if you can be a brand that at least is showing willing to do their part in order to reduce carbon emissions and, and show how, like those three pillars that I talked about, um, as, as examples, and of course, there's never that's never enough. It's not enough to do that. Like at the end of the day, don't fly if you want to reduce right. But if you have to fly, then pick a provider that's helping you with your conscience. Yeah, no, I think it's a great approach because I I saw um, last year I was actually laughing with a colleague of mine. There was an article around uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. He's obviously big on the whole like environmental piece, climate change, and he had just done some form of an event. And then the next week he was pictured on a yacht in the south of France. So the article went, oh, typical Leo, hypocrite, pushes all this stuff. But then, and and when I was reading the article, I just sat there and I said to my colleague, I said, look, you can't, as you rightly as you said, you can't win. He's probably the biggest advocate and I'm sure he's doing so much you know, to contribute to making the world a better place. But of course, people, uh, I've always said, people aren't going to stop flying. People aren't going to stop going on yachts and doing all this stuff. What actually needs to happen is just doing it in a more sustainable way. Totally. And, you know, maybe this um, COVID-19 pandemic, as dreadful as it is, the silver lining or one of the silver linings, because I think there's quite a few, um, is that there will be less flying. There will be a bounce back. People are always fly but i hope that those people that maybe did the routine business flights as part of their monthly routine don't just do those flights for the sake of it right and if and that there must be lots of people like that who fly less and that's got to be a good thing but it's you know flying is an easy it's an easy target in the same way Premier League footballers are an easy target when you start talking about furlough, and you know. And so, we've got to be. You got to. You got to look at the big pictures. Like many, many societies have had many years of enjoying travel and flying. So why should others now not be able to do that? Just because we've realised we've ruined the country. You know, we're, we're ruining the world. Similarly with football, you know, let's not forget the societal fabric and how important it is to the UK, right? And these people are sometimes not given the full understanding, I don't think, um, and the value that they bring and arguably why they earn so much money. One of the things I've read about Victor is around the industry leading technology and how, you know, you guys have really built uh, a platform that's transparent, that's super user friendly. So how, how would you describe the role 
technology has played in, in the growth and the success of Victor? What the technology really enables us to get accurate quotes to our clients as quickly as possible um, that represent the marketplace. So when you request quotes with Victor, we disclose exactly who the operator is. So you might be familiar with VistaJet, for example, or, or Globair or Air Hamburg. There's many great operators around Europe and their aircraft are floating about all over the place. So when you request quotes, depending on where you're based, our technology allows you to receive a selection of quotes very quickly that disclose the operator names, but also the tail numbers of those aircraft. And so a bit like if you are buying a car, you don't just buy a Volkswagen Golf, right? Because the VW Golf could be a second-hand VW Golf entry level with 80,000 miles, or it could be a GTI brand new full leather seats, nice alloys, right? And so Believe it or not, still today, if you're chartering a jet, often a broker will just be like, okay, I have a light jet for you, which is a jet with six seats. But what is the light jet? Like, is it a Phenom 100 or is it a Citation CJ2, you know? And, and how old is it? And what does it look like? What are the actual photos? So the technology allowed us to present all of this information as quickly as possible upfront to the consumer. And the idea is that it makes private aviation, business aviation, a lot more accessible than it was before. Um, it's still expensive, but on-demand brokers certainly make it more affordable in that you don't have to prepay to use Victor. There's no membership fee. There's no £2,000 a year or, or you know, subscription cost or, or jet cards where you have to pay €200,000 for 25 hours. At Victor, there's, there, there is none of that. It's a fully on-demand service. So you only pay for the flight that you're taking um, with your friends or your colleagues and you know one one thing i found super interesting i actually wanted to ask you is there ever a worry on your end with all these copycat startups which are launching right hey we're an on-demand jet service there's tons and tons i see every day popping up do you ever worry about that and think mm, we have to kind of defend our corner because you guys have literally said this is our business model this is what we do here are all the operators we work with they're on our website scroll contact numbers. I mean, you have everything on there. It's almost like you've laid your your business model bare. And I just, I, yeah, I just wanted to, to ask you about that. Yeah, I guess you could say the same thing, right? If you were, um, you know, if you're Jurgen Klopp and you've got Liverpool, everyone can see your tactics every day and see how you play and replicate it. I feel like um, going back to what we were talking about earlier around customer service and the authenticity that your people bring to the table, like, Sure, you can, you can copy anyone nowadays. Anyone can copy anything, but it's very obvious when it's not authentic coming from somebody original. And the quality of the people that you have is the number one thing. Like, forget the brand, forget the technology, forget everything like that. It's all about who you have and your culture. Um, it brings another whole topic around working from home and having office spaces and whether it's important to have an office. So, so I, I know what you mean. So it doesn't worry me. It certainly doesn't keep me up at night. Like if, if people want to copy our model, that just shows we've built a great model. Um, and I think every day you have to continuously look to improve what, already, what, what you already have. So for us, like going down, beginning to be more um, thoughtful and responsible with our CO2 emissions and working with our key operators, that was a big thing for us. So was um, not too long ago, we introduced a loyalty program 
called Alto, which is a bit like Avios for commercial airlines, but it's loyalty points for our clients, which you collect when you fly and you can collect points with our partners as well, which you can then use to redeem the cost of your jet. So you, you can build up, you can invest in your brand and you can buy PR and you can get PR. You can do all of these things, but ultimately if the relationship between the high net worth individual who's using the jet or between the travel manager who's using the jet or the personal assistant who's using the jet, that relationship with the broker and that individual, if it's no good and you haven't got that, um, you can copy what you want and you're not going to be very successful. And um, going back to, you know, when you mentioned your point about uh, there's some brokers in the market who essentially can just say, hi, soul. Yeah, you want to book this jet? I've got this jet available, right? Which, which which goes against essentially your your model of transparency because it's all about as you said you guys provide everything the operator the plane images do you think eventually there'll be regulations put in place to stop that from happening so you know more uniform regulations which will say right in order to be a private jet broker you have to disclose all information the aircraft the, you know because right now as you said you could literally be a guy with an iPhone with good contacts, get yourself in with an operator and start like you see a lot of people sell, whether it's empty legs or actual just general charter, but they can do that without having the pressures of the transparency and the rest of it. So how do you see uh, in terms of regulation that playing out in the in the years to come? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So as you say, business aviation, brokering as a broker, unregulated, so anybody can do it. And that was partly why we, was so heavy hitting on the transparency because it was almost a way of self-regulating. Um, there's EBAA, the European Business Aviation Association, play an increasingly important role and they've been doing some great work in particular during the last couple of months. So I think bodies like them can help by showing which brokers are part of their association and which ones are reputable and therefore who you should use and who you shouldn't use. Um, the, the the reality, though, unfortunately, so is you know, I've now been in this sector for eight over about eight years, and I would have, if you'd asked me that eight years ago, I'd have said, well, in four years, you know, everyone's going to be by the book doing things um, correctly and in a in a more transparent manner, um, and it just hasn't happened. So uh, there has to be some responsibility on the user just to do a bit of due diligence on the supplier on the broker and making sure that um they are they are reputable and 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 i'd encourage for example if you're using a broker to ask who's the operator if they haven't told you who the operator is um and if, if there's any hesitation there then you immediately know that this is slightly strange because um that's the supplier that you're ultimately going to be flying on. And so you haven't, you absolutely have a right to know immediately who that, who that, who that operator is. And the brokers who have, they have nothing to be afraid of the bigger brokers, because if you go, if you were to go directly from an operator to an operator, right on a quote, which has been sent to you from a broker, that operator will send you straight back to the broker. That's how it works because they value a company like Victor. And there's, there's, there's other good big brokers. Um, they value their business because we, the broker has become a key client for them. So they, they want you to handle 
the business. One, because they value all the other business you get, but also brokers play such an important role in terms of handling the relationship, ensuring that the payments are done correctly. It actually allows the operator to focus on what they do well, which is more difficult now than ever because of, again, because of COVID. And, and, and that's things like um, making sure that the crew, you know, the crew rotor, making sure they're getting enough rest. Do they have the necessary qualifications to fly into that particular airport? Um, sorting out permits. Like there's a lot of aviation centric, you know, professional services that the operator need to do. And therefore, if the broker can handle the money and the, the client, and when the client's late, tell them they can't be late, you know, all of this stuff, the itinerary, it's a really important relationship there, which is valued by both parties. So, um, I don't know if it's going to become regulated. I don't, I don't think brokers will become regulated, but um, you do read a lot more about transparency now than you did eight years ago. So, No, for sure. Um, also, something I found really interesting is that your customers, and please correct me if I'm wrong because you know your business better than I do, but your customers have the ability to sell seats on their own charters and then they have they can earn seventy percent on seats sold. We we don't sell seats anymore. Um, we stopped selling seats in probably 2014, 2015, um, just because in order to get enough people on one jet all agreeing to pay a certain price is logistically it's pretty difficult. But also the moment one client is late, for example. You've got then that kind of quandary, okay, do we fly and leave the passenger or do you um, wait for the passenger? Either way, you're going to have an unhappy customer. And of course, you can deal with these things through having strong terms and conditions. But the reality is like, if someone's paid 1,500 quid for a seat, that's still a lot of money for a seat on a flight and maybe an hour and a half. And so it becomes extremely difficult to manage. Uh, so yeah, we don't, we, don't do seats. we don't do seats at all anymore um for that reason and and there's not really the companies that have tried to do it i think have really struggled um there's a few routes in the us where it works a lot better for example miami new york that's a route which you probably can sell seats on jets because you've got so many people that can afford to do that on such a popular route yeah no fair and i and i did think it was quite a challenging thing because you see it on the um What's the app Fly Exo? They're always they they have a, a seat seller membership model, but then the challenge is X amount of people have to take up the seats for the flight to to happen, which is tricky, as you said, because if only if two of you pay and no one else comes in on that flight, then you're stuck. Because it's just yeah, I always thought it was a very challenging thing to do. I didn't really understand the dynamics, but now you've explained it better. I can see why it's a it's a difficult thing to take on unless you're unless you're sure that you have the market available to service first and foremost. hundred percent, yeah. Exojet, you're 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 spot on. They do seats in in America, and I think they do that successfully. But they also acquired JetSmarter, who were historically in in Europe. But I think they you know, they no longer exist, as far as I'm aware, in Europe on the seat model. And a few others, Surfair, were another one who no longer exist at least in europe they don't i think they again i think they have a model in the us yeah and what would you say um are some of the current challenges and opportunities you're facing um in the private aviation sector yeah i'd say the biggest challenge for me right now is this balance of um going back to business as usual as quickly as possible especially 
European broker, given the seasonality of flights, like most people fly, the majority of private flights that happen in Europe are June, July, August. And so if, if the restrictions remain for too long, then you're going to miss the opportunities now because some restrictions are beginning to lift. For example, from the 1st of July, you can fly private, privately into Spain. It's like, okay, well, how, how quickly do we get work? How many, how many workers do we need in the office um, off furlough? And, and that balancing act between um, business as usual and getting back to pace, but also empathizing with um, both the market and also your colleagues and how they feel now having just spent three months in lockdown is, is a real challenge so um that's the biggest challenge the opportunity is um there's a lot of people who could afford to use a business jet that don't or didn't historically um there's also a lot of businesses who probably flew on routes that may not be serviced by commercial airlines anymore because as we all know they're making big cuts left right and center so the opportunity is actually the market, both corporate and leisure, has, has in theory grown quite significantly over the last couple of months. So the challenge then is in practice as a brand and with people who are, I mean, we're more heavily towards the entrepreneur investor type than, um, sorry, individual type than, than the corporate type is, is how do you adapt your brand and your business and your services and your process in order to win that business. Because it's easy to say it's there, but how do you actually capture it and make sure that it's yours and not a competitor's? So there's, there's, there's a good challenge that we're working through at the moment. I wanted to ask you um, the craziest request you guys have received from a client. What's like the most odd or like something that made you scratch your head and think, who is this person? Yeah, we get we we get I get asked that a fair bit, and I'm I'm gonna there's there's like wacky stuff that's happened in the years by, but actually recently because of what's been going on, there's been some um some really sad things, but also some some interesting stuff. So like at the moment, we have a lot of students from China, um, all, all over the UK at universities who are trying to get back to China, and there aren't flights from the UK directly, so they're trying to get from where there are flights in Europe. And our group charter team has been arranging like loads of commercial group charter flights. So I'm not talking about small private jets here. I'm talking like aircraft like A320s full of students from cities all over the UK flying to a European airport to then get them on a commercial flight to then fly them to China. So like that's a huge project where we're flying thousands of people. So that's pretty interesting. Um, at the other end, we had a we had a lady in Marrakesh, um, and her daughter has a heart condition. She was born with a hole in her heart, and they were on holiday just before COVID nineteen broke out, and she needed to get back to the UK as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, Morocco had shut down their shut down their barriers, um, their hurdles. Sorry, their borders. I get the right word eventually. So. We, um, we, we were trying to get permits from the local government agencies to allow a plane to go in. And we were on a waiting list. It was taking ages and ages. And obviously, because the health of the child, it was becoming more and more of a situation. Anyway, we worked with a partner operator of ours who happened to be there already picking up another client. And we essentially created a deal whereby our client could get on their aircraft and fly them back to the UK. So they paid um through us for section of the jet 
to make sure that they got home as quickly as possible so we didn't have to charter our, our own whole aircraft. So like those are two um, completely different stories that we've experienced over the last few weeks. And um, I'd say generally speaking, we've moved the, the whole like private jet catering cabin attendants. I mean, the first thing the operators did was get rid of the cabin attendants because the last thing you want is an additional person and no catering because that's another way of easily catching the virus right so it's become much more of a functional tool over the last few months business aviation um and i suspect we'll hear fewer people talking about private jets and more people talking about business aviation as as the users pivot and start thinking more of it as a tool it's it's always been a tool but like the media in particular it is a it is really a functional tool that allows you to do these kind of trips that you couldn't do otherwise also, I wanted to get your opinion on the recent, I don't know if you saw it in the news, you know, the flight that happened, a group of guys who flew to France privately got there and then got sent back home. And my my thought around that when I saw it was surely whoever's booked the flight needs to manage expectations or they, or they haven't really done their homework to, to know to foresee this was was going to happen i just thought you'd have a really interesting take on it because i just read about it and i thought it was it was funny so i thought i'd ask you because you'd actually have an interesting perspective yeah i won't name the um the broker because it's a bit unfair and a bit embarrassing because but i, I empathize to them somewhat because as 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 you know dealing with people is, is sometimes extremely difficult especially people with money and if they're being persuasive um and they've maybe maybe the account manager of that particular client at that particular broker wasn't so strong or so experienced to say no, that the client sensed a weakness and, and, and basically persuaded them to give it a shot. That's, that's how I saw it from looking at it externally, that the client was desperate to do this trip um, and persuaded the broker to take the risk. And there was probably some, I suspect there was an agreement you know, if I don't get in and I have to fly back, that um, I'll still pay the full whack. So you, financially, as a broker, you're at no loss, right? Uh, and therefore, it was it was just unfortunate that the media got a hold of it and it, it got into the press. So, um, I mean, the guy, the, the 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 passengers themselves are pretty foolish. Like, clearly, the restrictions are in place to protect people's health and good health, and um, the restrictions are quite generous in many respects like most countries will let you fly back into your country if you're a national there right and most countries will let you fly into a country if it's a medical emergency there's a there's, there's masses of business that could still be won by companies for those two reasons alone um but yeah look cash flow um there's another incident with a plane getting compounded and um is it in the congo uh, an operator tried to fly it as a humanitarian trip. The flight plan was humanitarian, but it was it was a regular commercial flight. Um, so when they landed, they got in a lot of trouble. These things are inevitable in a in a in a serious situation like this when you've got loads of people who have never been through anything like it. More so now. I just kind of before we finish, I wanted to touch on more about you. So you spoke about playing rugby when you were younger, but what are your what are your hobbies today? What, what do you do outside of work? Sure. I run quite a bit. I was, I was one of the runners who was planning on doing the marathon in April, but that got cancelled. Um, so I am looking forward to doing that. I'm currently 
my wife's pregnant. Um, Congratulations. Thank you with our first kid. So that's quite a big, I'm not sure you can call that a hobby, but I think it's going to be <laughs> Yeah, um, I don't think you can put it in the hobby box. <laughs> quite a big interest. Obviously, like Victor is pretty consuming. It takes up, I'd be lying if I didn't say it, it takes up a lot of time, not just at work, but, you know, thinking about uh, the business. Ooh, every day you do it at some point. Um, so then balancing friends and family, like I'm pretty sociable, enjoy hanging out with my mates, like most people, um, going on holidays, things like that. So, you know, time is time is valuable. Victor, I have to say, is probably a, a hobby as well. Like I, I do love, I love working here. I love the challenges. Aviation is an, is an awesome industry that I fell into by default, but I'd recommend it to anyone who's um, like, who enjoys a different day every day because every day is different and you come in and something's happening and um it's 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 a it's a it's a fun sector to be in um albeit not right now with everything that's going on and also i wanted to say so for anyone some of the people that might listen who have an inkling they might want to go into the aviation industry what would you recommend how would you recommend um what advice would you give to people who want to start out in the aviation industry or who may be in the aviation industry and maybe stuck in a role that they're thinking I could do something else within this sector that's a bit more exciting or a bit more me what what advice would you give I would read like I find the economist is great the Sunday times is good the FT weekend is decent and the reason I'm naming hard hard copy like physically printed things is because I find that if you buy them you you do actually read them what I read them cover to cover online you tend to just read the stuff that has been cookie that's of interest to you so you might open up your interests by reading something um cover to cover and and i'm just speaking from experience right like i often do that i buy it when i have the time on a sunday there's some you know not a lot i enjoy more to be honest than buying an old school newspaper getting a nice coffee and a juice and and, and sitting down and just reading the whole thing and there's so much transferable in there that you transferable information and clients in a completely different sector, but you're like, oh, that's a client. That's interesting. And then you can tell your colleague who looks after that client this is going on. So it all starts to compound and make sense, I think, if if you do that. In terms of aviation, there's 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 a few trends that are coming. We talked about sustainability that's super exciting, like sustainable aviation fuel. Um is an interesting subject. Electric planes and VTOL or eVTOL. So it's eVTOL stands for electric vertical takeoff and landing. And it's worth a Google, E-V-T-O-L. Um, they're like these mini, they're being designed by, there's probably 200 manufacturers worldwide who are creating these VTOL vehicles, which will I mean, the way I see it is them flying up and down the River Thames, right? But they're electric, so they're far quieter than a helicopter. So you're going to get a lot more. They're a lot more efficient and they're a lot cleaner, right? And so they could be used on various shuttles around. around. And you hear about like um, Amazon buying the real estate above buildings, right? This is the future. So I think this is a hugely exciting space. And there's going to be a load of consolidation because there's no way you're going to have 200 VTOL manufacturers in the same way the car manufacturers consolidate and you end up with like a dozen major players. So I was, if I was interested in aviation and travel right now, and I liked dealing with interesting people, that sector 
that little niche veto now i would be knocking on the doors of those companies trying to get an internship in one of those um and you've got people what well, you know what's really cool is you've got companies like porsche and aston martin building building these vehicles but then you've got airbus and aviation companies doing it so there's and then you just got tech startups building them as well like dyson-esque 20 years ago so if you pick the right one and you get in early and you show that you're willing and you maybe get some share options in 10 15 years you could be onto an absolute winner so that that's something that um that's just that's a really exciting space which uh, will get funded and will continue to grow irrespective of the macroeconomics and um, if we have a recession till 2023 and we don't see passenger airline getting back up to that level. Oh, thank you for that. And um, I will close in question uh, for all our guests, Toby, as you know, the podcast is called Can I Get a Picture? The final question is, who's the one person that inspires you that you'd love to have your picture taken with and why? Oh, um, I'm lucky because I've, I've met a lot of my, my, my heroes, as it were, through, through work. Uh, you know Michael Jordan he's a, he's a very interesting guy and not just because of his basketball his whole personality so that's, that's probably too probably too trendy right now to say that um, strengths of character they're the people who appeal to me these people that have gone like defied all jobs thanks again to Toby for taking the time to chat with me and thank you all for listening if you enjoyed the show please leave us a review be sure to follow us on Instagram at Can I Get a Picture Pod, and we'll be back again next week with another episode. 